0: The Sermon on the Mount, though it was delivered on the side of a hill one day in Israel, its power, truth, and simplicity have pierced through every century since. His divinely inspired words are not only timeless, they are timely for us. We hope you will join us as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Welcome to Redeemer. If you're brand new, we are in the middle of a preaching series, walking through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which is Jesus' uh, longest recorded and perhaps most famous sermon in all of history. And uh, it's just been an incredibly uh, challenging and uh, fruitful thing for me in my life, and I hope that it has been for you as well. I don't know if you've ever had this tension, but if you're honest, you probably have. Uh, Maybe a tension uh, that you have felt uh, where you just uh, didn't... You felt not good enough, anybody? you just you like felt like you weren't doing good enough, you weren't obeying well enough, you weren't uh, doing all the right things, and maybe you were struggling with more wrong things than you're willing to admit. Uh, and what that does, I think at some level, every one of us feels that, that we know there's like a standard, and even if we want to meet it, uh, we, just, we, we struggle to meet it. Uh, we struggle to even hold ourselves to the same standards that we would like maybe to hold someone else to, and uh, we, we struggle to fully obey the law, obviously, Uh, And what that does is if we live under that kind of low-grade... Uh, shame and stress for a long time, it produces some, some negative things in us. It produces some deep insecurities uh, where we have to kind of overplay our cards if we do something good uh, and really draw attention and make sure that people around us know that we've, we've done something good or we've learned something or we're growing and we really kind of have to downplay or even ignore or hide or maybe lie about mistakes we've made or problems that we uh, have because uh, we've kind of l- linked up our, our image and our worth with our actions and how well we we obey the law, and none of us really do probably as good as we, we, we put on with others, maybe, uh, what Jesus does in this passage is just kind of relieves us of that. He, he just kind of takes the pressure off of our shoulders to fully fulfill the law and the commands of God, and he takes it upon his shoulders where it rightly belongs, removing the the, the weight from us, from our heart, removing this kind of low-grade, and, uh, uh, what did I just say? <laughs> Is that a word? Guilt and shame. Don't combine those. That's a dangerous, dangerous uh, word I'm creating here. Like, he just kind of removes. Some of these things allows us to live in this kind of freedom that we that we were designed to live in that the gospel affords to us because of what Jesus has done. So I honestly think, uh, though this is a highly theological thing that Jesus is teaching, it is so wildly practical for truly helping us to live in freedom and gratitude, like Jesus has designed us to live. Uh, he's going to say some things. Uh, that are incredibly weighty, and like it, what, what he was doing is he 's transferring this weight of having to fully please God by action from us to himself, as he says in other places that uh, we need to trade up with him that, uh, that like this yoke is not something that we need to be bearing, so he uh, in, in his goodness and his kindness will put that yoke on him, and he has broad enough shoulders to carry it. so I hope uh, that this is a very freeing message and idea for you and your heart that Jesus is just lifting that weight of just never quite good enough off of our shoulders where he is in fact good enough. If you're ready to hear anything about that, just say Jesus. All right, Jesus is preaching. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 is where we are at this morning. And Jesus says this. He starts out speaking. And remember, if you're brand new, he is preaching specifically to disciples, to people who have self-proclaimed. They're like, I believe the gospel. I believe I'm a sinner. Jesus is a Savior. They've heard enough of the gospel, to have personally responded to it, and now they would say, okay, we're in. We're, we're, we're disciples. We're Christians, and so Jesus is speaking to them. The whole Sermon on the Mount, though applicable and helpful for everyone, is specifically designed for Christians. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, the reason he says that uh, is probably there was uh, already there was rumors out there, uh, probably started uh, and continued by the Pharisees that Jesus really did not care about the law, uh, that Jesus didn't care about trying to obey uh, or trying to fulfill the Old Testament law. Uh, because, catch this, this is s- super important. Not because Jesus. Broke the law, but because Jesus broke the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, which you need to know are two very, very different things. And so, because Jesus was violating what they determined uh, was a a law or a command or their interpretation of God's word, they just kind of put Jesus in this kind of crazy lawbreaker category that he doesn't care about the Old Testament. He doesn't care about God's laws. He doesn't care about God's commands um, because he broke their interpretation, not the actual uh, commands. Uh, So the Pharisees were a group of people a kind of religious slash political uh, in the, the first century Jewish world. And they were like very zealous to obey the law e- externally, to try to follow uh, just the letter of what the law said. And in fact, they were so scared that they were going to break the actual laws or commands of God that they added what they called kind of a fence or a hedge uh, of a whole bunch of other laws around God's law so that they wouldn't even get close to breaking God's law. So God had a, a command, and you've probably recognized this from The top ten, right? The Ten Commandments that is a command about the Sabbath. That the the command is very simply: honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. So in God's in God's heart, He's giving a command. The command is for our good, for us to have a day where we physically rest, and more than that, where we spiritually rest from our work and trust in the work uh, of the coming Messiah. Right? That was the point of the Sabbath: to give us time. Every single week to shut everything down and to rest our body and to thank God for what He's done. Uh, but they were so scared of violating the letter of the law that they added all these other laws that Jesus was continually breaking, and so they were always getting on to him because they were saying he was breaking the Sabbath, right? But he wasn't. He was breaking their additions to an interpretation of the Sabbath. Uh, he, he he heals someone on the Sabbath and they get all up in arms because he broke their rules. So like they're kind of spreading these ideas that Jesus is a lawbreaker. He doesn't care about obeying God. And Jesus comes and he says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Those two words are going to come up. I'll explain those here in a few moments. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Say it fulfill them. He's like, listen, you, you heard some rumors about me that I don't care about the law. I don't care about the prophets. Uh, I'm just here to speak for myself, Jesus might say. Uh, I didn't come to abolish them or do away with them. He says, I came to fulfill them. Verse 18, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot. And those represent really kind of the smallest strokes uh, of the Hebrew alphabet. Think about like an accent mark or, or some like a tilde in Spanish or some very, very small, not even a letter, but a, a mark on a letter. Jesus is saying, listen, I love the, 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 the word of God so much, the law and the prophets so much that like heaven and earth would pass away before even God gets an, an apostrophe wrong. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I want to take a moment and just unpack what does it mean when Jesus says that he came to fulfill two things, both the law and the prophets. Uh, In in Jesus' time, uh, the phrase law and prophets really mainly constitutes uh, the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, which for us, if you have your Bible, it's divided into two big portions: the Old Testament and the New Testament. So law and prophets oftentimes just refers to the entire Old Testament or basically uh, the functional, the the Bible that Jesus had in his day and time. So the law would have been the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they contain a lot of the law or basically what God's commands are, what his expectations are, uh, what we should do and how we should live. But then you've got a whole section of prophets. Um, these are like uh, the big names, Jeremiah, Isaiah, some of the smaller prophets, Amos or, or Micah, all these prophets that speak in the Old Testament that sp- say about things that are going to come and very specifically spend a lot of their time writing about the coming Messiah or the coming Christ and predicting certain things about the Messiah so that we would have no doubt, and we would recognize him. So when Jesus says the law and the prophets, that's what he's referring to. Uh, The law of how we should live our lives and the prophets that say what and who uh, to expect in the future. And Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And he fulfills both of them, okay? So how does Jesus fulfill the law and how does Jesus fulfill the prophets and what does that mean for us? That's where I'm headed uh, the next few moments. Uh, There's a lot of commands in the Old Testament. It it starts with the the 10 commandments and there's more as you go on. And what Jesus is saying is that all of these commands that were given to not just the world but to God's people, Jesus is saying like, "I I fulfilled all of them. Anybody else in the room, that's your resume? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm looking for a job, and so I put my resume, in, and I'm just like, I fulfilled every single law that God ever gave. If you write that, that's not a good place to start, right? Like, But but Jesus is, he, he's bold enough to say, like, everything about the commands God has given us in the law, I have filled them up, I have fulfilled them, I have done them, I have done everything that the law commands, I've avoided everything that the law tells me to avoid. Jesus fulfilled the law. And then he says that he fulfilled the prophets. What does that mean? Uh, basically, that means all of these Old Testament prophets that like there were some moments in in my past where I was really struggling with some very, very deep spiritual things. Uh, just like, is the Bible really God's word? Did, did God really speak through uh, human instruments? And were they able to get it right? And is it accurate? And can you trust it? And is it true? Uh, and when I began to kind of look at just the, the, the reality of prophecies that were made hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus would come on the scene, I mean, it just had an unbelievable way of building my faith to think, man, like God God did this. God made some prophecies and he has slowly and surely executed on all of them, mainly the ones which there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament talking about who the Messiah or the Christ would be, where he would be born, what he would look like, what he would do, what he would not do. And Jesus is saying, I didn't just act really good. I didn't just fulfill the law. He says, I fulfilled the prophets. Like I stepped into every single prophecy that the Old Testament gave about the Messiah so that there should be no doubt that we have found who we're looking for. Um, I'm not gonna run through all 330 plus of these, although I wish I had time. Lunch would be over by then. But I do wanna walk through a few of these because like some of them are more generic and some are incredibly specific. And it's just, it should build your faith to just see how how God acts throughout all of history. And if he promises something, and if there's a prophecy of something, It's going to happen, okay? So when Jesus says that he fulfilled all the prophets, that he is and he does all that they predicted, let me just run through a few of these. Um, In uh, Micah chapter 5, the word of God predicts, a prophet predicts that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. There's a lot of people born in Bethlehem, right? That kind of narrows it down a little bit, but that's not a super exclusive category yet. Uh, Hosea says that there's a prophecy that uh, his son would also not just be born in Bethlehem, but we would be called out of Egypt. And and that kind of is a little bit, maybe hard, at least for the the original hearers to to understand what in the world does that mean? And how is Jesus going to execute that But you remember when Jesus is being born, Herod tries to kill all the children. So his dad takes him and flees to where? Like, okay, (laughs) for most of these, you don't even need to know the answer. You could have never opened your Bible and you're just, just guess like, like Jesus fits whatever it says. All right. So the Hosea says he's going to be called out of Egypt. Where does Jesus go? And Where is he called out of when everything is safe for him to come back home? He's called out of Egypt, right? So this kind of begins to narrow down. Uh, In Jeremiah, this is a a major prophet uh, in the Old Testament, chapter 31, um, there is a a prophecy or foretelling that when the Messiah comes, there's just going to be a senseless slaughter uh, of infants around his death. And you see that take place through this wicked king, uh, Herod, who's trying to do away with this promised Messiah because he wants to be the king. He doesn't want uh, Jesus or this Messiah to be um, the king. And Isaiah chapter forty uh, says that there will be a prophet uh, that will come before the Messiah, and he will preach in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and he will be very effective as a preacher. And then before Jesus shows up, this like this preacher that was so 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 powerful and effective at preaching the gospel and calling people to repentance that people actually thought he was the Messiah until he says, no, I'm I'm not the Messiah. I'm actually the one that was predicted to go and prepare the way of the Lord. And so John the Baptist does this to fully fulfill this prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says that he will be called or he will live in Galilee. Guess where Jesus grew up after being called out of Egypt? you are doing so well. Uh, he, he, he moved to Galilee. That's where he was from. That's where he based out even a lot of his ministry. Uh, so like the funnel's getting smaller. Maybe there's a handful of people left. Isaiah chapter 7 says he will be born of a virgin, right? <laughs> Got real small, real quick down to just one guy. And then Jesus is born to Mary who had not known her fiance and was born of a virgin. Uh, Isaiah says also that uh, when he shows up, you'll recognize him because the blind will see, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, the, the, even the dead will, will rise. And so when people start seeing this, they're making connections like, oh my gosh, could this be him? That's like five prophecies that all find their fulfillment in this guy named Jesus. Isaiah 62 even talks about how he would enter Jerusalem the last week of his life, this triumphal entry, uh, talking about even what animal he would ride, and he rides it into Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy. Zechariah chapter 13 uh, says, even his own disciples would abandon him. Guess who abandons him on the cross? His disciples. Why? One, because they were scared. Two, because they were fulfilling the prophecy because God stands out of time and and he sees the future just like it is the present. Zechariah 11 gets so specific to say that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver when Jesus is being betrayed. Guess what the price was that Judas took for his betrayal? 30 pieces of silver. Uh, There was uh, Psalms, which is written, a a lot of them by King David, which would put it right around 1,000 B.C., meaning... for our vernacular, before Jesus Christ, right before Christ was born a thousand years, and it predicts that Jesus would die on a cross three hundred years, three centuries before the world knew what crucifixion was. The Persians had not invented it yet, the Romans had not um, tweaked it yet, and yet there 's this promise that they will it will pierce his hands and his feet. People read that like what a strange thing, and yet. 300 years later, crucifixion is vetted. 700 years after that, the Messiah is crucified, just exactly like the prophecies have said. Isaiah 53 says he will be uh, crucified basically between two thieves. Guess, what? G- guess who Jesus was crucified between? Two thieves. This is so easy. Um, Isaiah 53 also says that he, when he's like brought up and these charges are brought up against the Messiah, the Lamb of God, he won't even open his mouth. Guess what happens when they ask him to defend himself? He didn't open his mouth. Uh, Psalms says that they will gamble or they will cast lots for the Messiah's clothes. Guess what happened when they stripped Jesus down and put him naked on the cross? They didn't want to tear his clothes, so they gambled for them. That's 14. I could keep going all the way through lunch. Over 300 things, some, some, more generic some incredibly specific but every single one of them point to jesus jesus says listen i fulfilled not just the law i fulfilled all of the prophecies the law and the prophets that that jesus is and does all that they predicted and then verse 20 matthew 5 verse 20 get back to the text jesus says for i tell you now before before I read this let me back up and remind you about the Pharisees because they were so good on the outside. I mean, they would put our morality to shame. They would never have lifted a hand to work on the Sabbath day. Uh, they would not have answered an email on the Sabbath day. Uh, we talked about this a, a week or two ago, that they even got down into their spice cabinet to to tithe uh, 10% of their dill, 10% of their cumin. Uh, and like, so what Jesus is about to say, if you're just aware of the, the, the external morality of the Pharisees, would kind of leave you a little bit frustrated with Jesus until you understand what he's saying. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I would imagine if we try to write ourselves into the story and imagine like if I was sitting there and I was kind of new to this Jesus movement I had a buddy who was a Pharisee and I'm always super intimidated by him because just squeaky clean never done anything externally wrong and then Jesus like unless your righteousness is better than his you don't get into heaven that would be like somebody telling you you can join my basketball team just as long as you're better than Steph Curry what would you say well dang it what's the point like nobody's better than Steph Curry right except for Michael Jordan like for Jesus to say, you don't get to go to heaven unless your righteousness is better than the best externally righteous people around. Probably pretty shocking, maybe frustrating. Until maybe the Holy Spirit opens their their minds, or Jesus continues to explain what He's actually saying. Uh, he, it's important to know what Jesus is not saying. Um, before maybe we jump into what he is saying, uh, he is not saying the Pharisees' bar of behavior is so low, you can do it. Like, you can be better. Than them, like that's just that's not what he's saying. That doesn't jive with anything else that Jesus um, shares. In fact, uh, really, the opposite is kind of true. Um, that we can't really you can you couldn't beat the Pharisees at their own game of just being a good person on the outside. Um, R.T. France wrote um, a pretty uh, powerful and helpful commentary walking through the book of uh, the book of Matthew, and I want to read you what he says about this. He says Jesus is not talking about beating the scribes and the Pharisees at their own game. He says, but he's talking about a different level or concept of righteousness altogether. And so I want to draw two different comparisons between like the 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 righteousness of the Pharisees which Jesus condemns and this righteousness that Jesus says unless ours surpasses theirs, like this, this is the surpassing side. So Help me out. This kind of helps me organize my thoughts as I move, so sorry to the camera, folks. But this is going to represent Pharisees, so this is like the inferior righteousness. This represents what Jesus actually wants for and from and in his disciples. And what Jesus means when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you don't get to enter heaven. And so before I walk through these, let me draw us back into just kind of this feeling that most of us have. Like, most of us just feel like we're not good enough, right? Like, we're just not as righteous as we ought to be, as we portray to other people that we are. And so, what Jesus, like, like we live in this world. We kind of live in this external righteousness world where we're trying to do our best to please God. And Jesus is not preaching to us, and he's not saying, just try harder. Just do more. You can do it, right? Right? that's not what he's saying. So what is he saying when he talks about this uh, different kind of righteousness? Uh, I want to lean on a man named Charles Quarles, uh, who is a professor at uh, Southeastern Seminary and wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I think we probably must use the same creative team uh, because the name of his book is just like, it's, it's awesome. It's super compelling. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, right? Also the name of our preaching series. Um, our, our worship pastor, Jonathan Galvan, uh, Charles Quarles was one of his professors at Seminary in Southeastern. And also, side note, uh, Jonathan and his wife had a baby yesterday, so praise the Lord for that. And thanks to Jordan for stepping in last minute to lead worship, but that's not what I'm talking about now. So Charles Quarles uh, wrote a book that's, it's an incredible, it's a fantastic book on the Sermon on the Mount. And he draws four distinctions that I I think are helpful and I agree with talking about the difference between the Pharisees' righteousness and what Jesus is actually trying to to do and accomplish in us. The first, he says, the inferior righteousness is they focus on the letter of the law and what Jesus wants is a focus on the spirit of the law. Okay? You can keep the letter of the law and miss the entire point, the Sabbath being the case. The Pharisees, like, they kept the letter of the law. They didn't go to work on the Sabbath, but they missed the entire point to rest in the work that Jesus would accomplish for them. So they, they, they focused on the, the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. Um, also, he says that focus on external matters rather than internal matters. Jesus would condemn them, like, like so proud of themselves that they had never murdered anybody, Right? We can agree that's kind of a low bar to be really proud of yourself. Like, why are you so awesome? I've I've never killed anybody. I've wanted to a lot of times, but I've never followed through with it. Some of you are like, I can relate. Like, they're they're focused on the externals. And she's like, you're missing the whole point. Like, the, the law is like, don't hate people. And he's like, he's like, it's not just an external thing. It's an internal thing that the law is getting at our hearts. And if you hate somebody in, internally in your heart, then you violated the command. And so, like, they focus so much on the externals that they uh, miss the internals. Uh, Coral says the third thing is they, and I've kind of rephrased this, basically, um, they, they they major in the minors instead of majoring in the majors, right? Majoring in the minors, which would be like, open up my spice cabinet, I will make sure that I give 10% of my cumin. Has anybody in here ever done that? I should check the box, maybe next week, somebody just shows up and you're just like, <laughs> you know, dumping your spices in there, we'll make some chili if it happens. Like, like that's a minor thing and, and like, you, you could make the case that oh, you should probably do that, tithe 10% of everything. But that's like a minor thing. They're going through their spice cabinet, pulling out 10%, uh, bringing it to the temple. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's great. You're you're majoring in the minors. And he would tell them, you neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and love. He's like, great that you gave 10% of your cumin. You don't care about justice for the poor or for the widow or for the sojourner or for the alien. That's a major deal he's like, you don't have any mercy for any broken, sinful people, yet you are majoring in the minors. Y'all see the difference? To major in the minors, pharisaical thing, to, to, to major in the majors, which Jesus would say is like justice, mercy, and faith. That's what the law is for. And the fourth thing that Quarlesworth says is that basically uh, to keep divine commands and not really to use those to display divine character. Okay to keep divine commands rather than to display God's divine character, which is expressed in a way through his commands. So here's my question. Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And if Jesus did, if Jesus fulfilled the law, why does the law matter to us today? And why should we care about God's law? Like if Jesus stepped in and he fulfilled it, then what, like what practical place should it play in the lives of Christians? And I'm going to unpack a couple of these and really focus on probably the third one because I think that's uh, what Jesus is talking about mainly. Uh, the, the, the law of God, is, it's, it's good on many, many different levels. Number one, uh, the law of God expresses his character. Like you know a little bit about who God is and what he's like and what he loves and what he hates based on his law. Right, if you if you are a parent in the room and um, you have children in your house, uh, at some point you make rules, amen? You have rules, you have commands, do this and don't do this. And those aren't just kind of super arbitrary. You're not just kind of throwing things out. Those correspond to, to what kind of a person you are. So if you tell your kids, hey, in our house, we don't lie. Why? Because you, as a person, you value the truth. And so um, the the law is an expression of of your character and what you value. We don't hit our siblings. Why? Uh, Because we love each other. Uh, We don't allow cats in the house. Why? Because we're Christians, right? I'm just kidding. I have a cat. Uh, do not tell Gobbler that I said that. Uh, it's like there, there's there's a way in which God uses His commands uh, to express what He is like, and basically His commands. If you just look at the commands, you're like trying to understand the 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 the, the heart of the the command giver behind the laws. You would very quickly come to the conclusion: Oh, th- th- this God is about. He's about love. He's about peace. He is about um, equality. He is about um, relationship. He's about fidelity. Okay, so God's laws and his commands, that they, they express his character. Second thing is they actually even just provide healthy societies, right? Even if people do not love God, they have no affection for God. If people in a society obey God's commands, it's just better for society, Like if you have a whole bunch of people that are atheists and yet they don't murder each other, can we agree that's a net positive, that's a win. So God's commands are good for friendships, for relationships, for families, for cities, for nations, for cultures, for societies. Like They're just good, even regardless of your affections towards the lawgiver. But the third one that I want to focus on is how God has designed the law. Don't miss this in the Bible, but we probably have more overlap with the Pharisees than, than, than we're willing to admit, okay? Even not just personally, maybe personally, but definitely culturally. There's just like a, a lot of pressure in the Bible Belt to uh, be good on the outside and make sure that we look good and we have all the right answers and we go all the right places and we have this kind of external righteousness And I want to read what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 about the law. And this is tucked right in the middle of a big chapter that's all about the law leading us to something else. Paul says this in Galatians 3. So then the law was our guardian. Uh, The word also means a tutor. Uh, It means a custodian. Uh, The law was like a caretaker over us, uh, drawing us, pulling us, leading us towards something else. He says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came and did what? And fulfilled the law. Okay, so the law, like it kept care of us all the way till Jesus, and then Jesus fulfills the law perfectly in a way that we cannot do. And so now then what role should the law play? Is it good for us? Yes. Is it good for society? Yes. Is it for us to obey? Yes. But it also is designed to lead us to Christ. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. When I was a kid uh, at Bushland Elementary, uh, we, we made maps, we made treasure maps. I don't know if any of y'all did this. We would get a piece of notebook paper and we would find a treasure and we'd go hide it in the playground. We had two recesses. Those were the days. Two recesses and a nap. I vote we bring that back. And so first recess, we would find some kind of treasure. Normally it was a, like a broken beer bottle, piece of glass that we just thought it looked like a diamond. And so recess one, we would go hide hide the whatever the treasure was, and then we would come make a treasure map, and then recess two, you would hand the treasure map to your friends, and your treasure map would be handed, and they would grab it, and they would kind of orientate it and try to figure out what was going on, and they would uh, try to understand what the map was leading to, and then recess two, I mean, we got like, we were, way, in, we were way, way into these treasure maps. I even coffee baked one one time. Do y'all know what that is? Like, you just dip in coffee, put it in the oven, dry it out, crinkle it up. You're like... Like I, look, I was like hanging out with Nick Cage. We could have been, I could have been in the movies. And then they would pull it out and like, oh my gosh, they would look at it. They would study it. They would orient. And then they would go out and what? Try to find the treasure. Because that's kind of the point of a, a, a map, a treasure map, is to go find the treasure, right? Um, if I handed it to one of my stellar buddies in kindergarten and he looked at it, he's like, this is an awesome map. This is just a fantastic map I just love what you've done with the crinkled edges. I love the coffee bake. You know, it's, I'm going to memorize this, this map. And I'm going to even, you know, spend my allowance. And I'm going to build a really nice case, and I'm going to put this map in the case uh, to protect it so that I can enjoy it. You would look him like, yeah, but why are you so in love with the map that you missed the treasure, right? Like, th- that's what the Pharisees did with the Word of God, like they fell so much in love, maybe that's not the best way to phrase that, the commands of God, they had memorized them, they had added to them, they enforced them on everybody else. And what, what Paul is saying in Galatians 3, I think what Jesus is preaching in Matthew 5, is like, listen, the point of the law is not for you to just simply obey it. It's like a treasure map that leads you to Jesus and you recognize, oh my gosh, Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the law, every single thing about it. And so to just kind of embrace this external morality and miss Jesus, it's like, God, this is just an awesome map. I love it. I've memorized it. I want to protect it. And so like when Jesus is saying... Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and that he has come to fulfill the law for us. Like part of that is an invitation for us just simply to rest. Like to let go of trying to earn God's favor through being good and through obeying external morality and use the law as you look at it. And you, Like if you're honest, like if you're really honest with yourself, and you read through even the 10 commandments and how Jesus interprets the 10 commandments internally you're not going to get very far until you realize that it is you are incapable of doing that if you're honest like if you're honest you open up the word of god and so when you get to that kind of that block in the road you have two choices to just try harder and just live with inevitable, low-grade guilt and shame because you're just not going to be able to do it, or you can open up the Word of God, use the law of God as a treasure map that leads you to Jesus. And you're like, that's what it means, that Jesus fulfilled the law. And so, the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ so that we're justified by faith. Like, Should we obey the law? Yeah, absolutely. And as we're sanctified and the Holy Spirit grows us and matures us, we obey the law more and more. Because that's what Jesus does in the hearts of his disciples, right? This true righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, it's a work of Jesus in our hearts after we've been led to him. So maybe, like, maybe you're new to church, maybe you're new to Christianity, maybe you're feeling this struggle, like I just, I'm just not good enough, I've got to hide some things, because if people know the truth about me, they're going to be really upset, really let down, and just kind of living under that. What Jesus preaches removes that from us, puts the weight of fully pleasing and obeying God and fulfilling the law on his shoulders, and his shoulders were strong enough to carry it. So this is really the, the the question I want to ask you is do you do you just love the map or has the map led you to, to Christ? And Christ is the treasure. And last thing, and I want to close on this because I thought it was important for us to to fix our, our hope on, is he said something in the text. He says, Until all is accomplished, heaven and earth will, will not pass away until all is accomplished. Okay, and Jesus himself accomplished a, a lot. Right, I mean, he fulfilled everything that the Messiah was supposed to do, right up through his life, death, resurrection, ascension. But there was a lot of things that were in the Old Testament that even for us today are futuristic. They have not happened yet. Okay, and Jesus says, "Until all is accomplished," meaning some of the future things, like mainly the second coming. For us, like Jesus was like, "Listen, guys." Against all odds, the first coming happened. Do y'all know how crazy it is that Jesus did that? That he survived Herod's attacks, that he survived uh, the Pharisees, that he survived people. Like, how... I mean, it's virtually impossible unless God intervenes that every single thing happened the way God promised. And so here's what you can rest your soul on. That if Jesus promised, if the Old Testament prophets promised that something is going to happen in the future, just as sure as the first coming happened, everything in the future will happen as God plans it. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret. You don't have to fear. God is in control. His word is true. And Jesus said, until all is accomplished. We're going to take communion in a moment. And I want to, like, that's part of what communion is, is it drops this, this, this tool into our laps, it just in between the first coming and the second coming. And, and it pushes our hearts to think about both. It, it pushes us to reflect on, like Jesus, He fulfilled the law and then He gave His life in our place for our sins. But then it also, we're reminded that he, He's not going to take the meal again until He does it again physically with us in His kingdom. So it's a tool for us to think about. The promises of God for the Messiah, and the first time He came, he, he did it, He fulfilled it, and so surely He will keep you to the end till that day. Let me invite you to pray with me. Jesus, we love You. We thank You. I am, I am constantly in awe for Your command over history that armies and tyrants and famines and disaster cannot thwart your plans, that if you say something will happen, then it will happen. So, Father, I pray this morning that you might help us to feel the weight of the law lifted off of our shoulders, put upon Christ who fulfilled it perfectly once and for all. God, I pray that you would remind us that you are going to come back, that you're going to get those who belong to you, that you will remove the curse, that we will live in glory and joy and peace with you forever. God, I pray that as we read the the word of God and as we understand what it says, that it would point us and like it would truly be a treasure map that lead us right to Christ, the treasure for us. God, we love you. Thank you. I'm thankful for these people and for this church and for what you're doing among us. Would you be glorified through the way that we individually respond this morning? I pray this through Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.